Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's podcast is a recording of a live show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank. The most recent show was so packed we've divided it into two separate podcasts, the second of which will be up here in a few weeks' time. For this week, our special guests are Edgar Wright, talking about a very guilty pleasure, and the brilliant Leslie Manville on her new movie, Ordinary Love. So sit back and enjoy MK3D live from the South Bank. Moving on to uh, the first of our guests, there is a film which is coming out uh, in a week's time, which I went to Belfast to do the Belfast premiere for, um, called Ordinary Love, which I just think is wonderful. Here's the trailer for Ordinary Love, which is premiered in Belfast uh, just last weekend and opens here next week. There isn't a moment I won't be there with you. It's an Any particular style today, <laughs> madam? <laughs> It suits you. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Too hot. Tea cosy. <laughs> no. I had this feeling that if I can get through it all, would somehow change me. I don't think it has. I don't think I want it to. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show Leslie Manville. I have to start by saying thank you for fitting us into your busy schedule because once you've finished here, you're rushing off to go and do a BAFTA screening. And I left you alone in the green room for five minutes and I came back and Boyd Hilton was giving you an award. <laughs> what did you just win? I just won Heat Magazine Television Actress of the Year. So tell us about Ordinary... I mean, I think it's a really powerful film. It's directed by Glenn and Lisa, who made Good Vibrations, which mm. I absolutely love to pieces. David Holmes has done the music for us. Tell us about the film. Well, it's written by um, an Irish playwright called Owen McCafferty, who hadn't written a film before. Um, and Lisa and Glenn, the two, our two directors, um, uh, encouraged him to write this film, which is no secret, is based on him and his wife's mm -hmm. story. Um, his wife, Peggy, went through um, breast cancer and uh, came out of it the other side, thankfully. Um, so he thought, he felt close enough to it, with her permission, obviously, to write about it. And um, then they came to me with it, and Liam was, was on board, so I thought, I don't really like my leading man, so he's going to have to go. <laughs> 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 um, but it's it's um, it's quite a hard film to sell when you have to try and sell it because I mean yes it's about um, a couple who have had and I won't say what it is because it's a bit of a spoiler they've had an earlier tragedy in their uh, married life and they are now they've their lives have closed down a bit and they've become content, and they love each other, and they fancy each other, and they laugh together, uh, and but their lives are very regular, very ordinary, um, and then they have to deal with this 
um, cancer that she gets. And, and, and in a way, that's it. I mean, that, but it, it, it monitors how this monumental thing that happens to so many people's lives now, how, it, how, it, how you handle it, how you deal with it, um, what it does to even the strongest and closest of relationships and just the subtle things that it that it does really and um, but it's also a film about it's also a middle-aged love story mm-hmm. which is um, a, a, a good thing to have on screen because everyone over 20 thinks that we don't do it anymore once we're over 50 <laughs> and it's not true well, um, the interesting, I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the title of the film is now Ordinary Love. When the script began life, it was Normal People. Yes. And um, when Owen McCafferty was on stage uh, in Belfast, he said that he, you know, he, he, he really liked Ordinary Love because it is a love story. But he also liked the fact that normal people told you that what the story is about is everyone else around the it focuses on a central couple but it's everyone else around them and it's this this idea that this is something that kind of everybody goes through a version of this and I, I I thought that was that was really powerful I think that the way in which it depicts the the treatment itself is if anyone has any experience of it it's very very accurate but um but it's about their relationship isn't it yeah it is that's that is the key thing and I I actually think Ordinary Love is a better title because it I mean, and normal people, obviously, we couldn't use it because of the novel. So um, uh, uh, I, I just think to get the word love in it mm-hmm. is, is quite important, really. Yeah. Um, I want to show a clip from the film itself, because one of the things that's really lovely about the film is it's very funny. And uh, when it played at Belfast, there was loads of laughter in the audience, a oh. very sort of... And, uh, but David Holmes, who was one of the producers and, and, and the composer, said it's interesting that in different areas people are uncertain as to whether they're allowed to laugh mm. at the jokes. And what was lovely in the Belfast audience was they absolutely did. Mm. So this is a... It's, it's just a little scene, but I think it kind of... It demonstrates some of what you're talking about and also how the humour is very, very important through the film. Here's a, here's a little clip. How long did they say you'd be in for? Well, at least a week. <clears throat> Got to make sure that the wounds clean and under my arms are all drained. Or... Mm. Do you need me to bring anything up? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> can you go into the top drawer and get my blue nightdress? Make sure it's the blue one because the other one's a bit grubby. And some knickers. Any type? Rodgers. <laughs> Don't make me laugh, it hurts. Not the crossless <laughs> Sturdy gusset. <laughs> Sturdy gusset. <laughs> Couple of face cloths as well. Anything else? Any other things that aren't sexually romantic? No, just the sexually romantic stuff. Yeah, I think that's important that uh, it's good that you've said that, that it's funny, because it, I think that um, I've had a, a lot of people, obviously, who've been through cancer talk to me about the film, and they really like that about mm. it, that it's not... I mean, Joan and Tom, the characters in it, are, are a, they, are, um, they are a glass-half-full couple, aren't they? But they're, they're, they're not... Yeah. They're not, um, they're not uh, it's not all downbeat, you know. They they also have a lovely kind of. Um, there's a, a very affectionate bickering in their relationship, I and mean, we saw a little bit of it when they have the discussion about, you know, I want tomato juice. Well, why don't you just get tomatoes? Well, tomato juice, tomato juice isn't the same as tomatoes. And she says, well, why don't you get a juicer? And he says, well, I wouldn't use it. And she says, well, you're not using enough. He says, hang on, we're having an argument about a juicer that we don't have. That I don't. And I I I I, I think that's it, that's really well observed character stuff about the way they tell each other they love each other is by having yeah. these kind of strange little arguments. Yes, and it, and it is the stuff of life, isn't it? It's the stuff of all our lives. We all have to shop. and So, I mean, I've always had a theory, you know, if you, you've got to do all this ordinary stuff in life. You might as well do it with some humour and, and with a bit of with a bit of fun, because it's easy to push the trolley around like that, but then you can tr- push it around and 
you know, be a bit more open to a bit of a gag occasionally. What's it like being directed by two people? Because Lisa and Glenn, I said they, they, I think they, they have very clearly defined roles. Is that right? Yes, they do. I mean, Lisa really directed Liam and I and the other actors, and Glenn kind of he's always there, and and they 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 go off and talk together, and you don't feel that they're being in a club because they're doing that. It's just they're, they're, they're husband and wife and they're collaborating and they understand each other and it's what they do best. Um, but Glenn really was to do more with cameras and shots and, you know, design things. But it, it, honestly, you wouldn't want... It would be bad news if both of them were coming up and maybe giving conflicting notes. That, yeah, yeah. that wouldn't be good. So that, that just didn't happen. So what was the atmosphere like on the set? Because obviously, you know, you're dealing with the, the, some of the subject matter is heavy, but the dialogue is... as I said, it is, There is a lot of laughter, a lot of levity in it. Mm. Even, you know, in some of the characters whose situation is, you know, is terminal, mm. there is a lot of laughter. Yeah. I, um, yes. It was a really lovely, good atmosphere on set. And the great thing about all the scenes with um, the, the, the te- technicians, the nurses, the chemo nurses and all of that, it w- those were real yeah. uh, people. Um, and that was, well, it was very humbling and also very useful because they they would talk me through exactly what it would be like and what would happen and how you'd be feeling. And But the chemo nurse in particular, I mean, she'd had... We just got talking and... Uh, I was talking about one of my sisters who'd been through breast cancer and um, she was talking about her life and her life was really quite difficult and quite hard. Mm -hmm. But her job, so I said, well, how do you manage this then? How do you manage this job that you're administering this horrible drug to people on a daily basis? And she said, but it's my job to make them feel better. And I, 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 it was just so... um, inspiring and uh, terrific on a practical level because she said by the third course or second course that's when the vomiting kicks in and then this when your hair starts to go is that did you shave your head or is that a are you wearing a process no I couldn't shave my head because um, I I would have done but I had to come back and do mum and she wasn't bald at the end of series (laughs) (laughs) But even if I'd have been willing to do it, uh, it wouldn't have worked really because you have to have all the stages. So if I'd have shaved it, then the next day we might have needed to do a scene when it's that growing back or the scene when Liam, when Tom cuts her hair and it's... So there was all the... So I actually had 11 different bald caps and... Um, stages of they of are brilliantly done because I, I, I've seen the film a few times you can't now see the I, joint no literally couldn't no, see the joint you didn't see all. that big stocking at the back <laughs> the other thing that I think is, is lovely about it is that the, the course of the narrative is that the couple begin together and then they are sort of separated by what's happening and then they're sort of brought back together again and so there is that lovely arc but there is a point in the middle of it when they are sort of separated from each other and it I think it's equally good at getting the sitting around in waiting rooms yeah. as to what's happening to your character. And the loneliness of it, you know, I mean, Tom says to Joan, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And he is, he is, he is there. Their lives are very um, interdependent. But uh, for me, what came through as an observer of the film is how, how lonely being ill on that level must be when you're looking at, you know, a, a scenario that isn't isn't the one you expected or wanted, the loneliness of it. That however much you're in a great relationship and however supported you are, um, you're alone. Yeah. So I think the film depicts that very well. I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's I think it's accurate in when it. Need, I mean, there's a there's a moment in it in which you hear the sound of the, mach, the machine that takes out the sample tissue. Yeah, which, yeah. And um, uh, but I think what's great is that uh, is that there is you you believe in the characters, you believe in their life, and even in the way in which they deal with grief and you know whatever is in their past is very very sort of naturally portrayed. Working with uh, Glenn and Lisa, who are this... I mean, I only know them, you know, from interviewing them as filmmakers, and they seem really, really lovely. They seem genuinely kind of... Now, you've worked... And I'm not saying it isn't. You've worked many times with Mike Lee. I imagine it's a very, very different experience with the the, the Mike Lee process, right? 
Well, the whole process with Mike is so different. I mean, it, with this, you know, it's, it's a bit more conventional. You get the script, yeah. you work on it. We worked, the four of us, Glenn, Lisa, Liam and I, and, you know, it, you, you do it like that. With Mike, it's um, so different. And Maxine might talk about that later too because she's worked with him. But mm. it, it's, um, it, it's such a protracted process. Yeah. You know, you work for months on your own with him, creating a character. Um, I think a lot of people think that you just kind of turn up on day one and start improvising and see what happens. And they also think that you yeah. you shoot that in that way, that you just roll the camera and see what happens. I mean, you know, n nothing is further from the truth. I mean, it's, it's more meticulous once you've arrived at it than any other film that I've made. Uh, it, it's down to the letter, to the full stop, to the comma. Yeah. But it's just the process of getting to that's very, very different. But um, I think that Mike, I think where you're coming from is that Mike has, a, has his own relationship with press and journalists. But on, on the day in the room, he loves actors and he's, yeah, yeah. he's very... Um, He's very uh, good with us, and he makes it the best experience for us. Oh, no, I should be. Clear. I mean, I've had really, you know, lovely conversations with uh, with Mike. I mean, he's he's tough when he needs to be tough, and he's also he's come on the show here, and he's been great fun. But I have asked him the same question so many times. I said, "Explain to me your process." And every How time, long have and, we, we've only got to uh, half exactly. Day, haven't we? And every we time I do, it, and actually, <laughs> the, the the best answer he ever gave me was. Um, uh, he said, he said, the thing is, what you, he said, what you have to understand is, he said, it's, it's like, he said, so firstly, he said, I love comedy, and people don't, don't see that you know, enough. They don't see the laughter. And he said, and secondly, you see the finished product, mm. right? And he said, if you get a Hoover or something, you wouldn't say, how was it put together? You just go, okay, <laughs> it, it works as it is. And so what you're saying was that you cannot understand this because you're not an actor. And I think that's true. Yeah, uh, yes. And I think also that, that, that what we arrive at when we shoot his films is, it, we don't ever have it written down, but that's a kind of detail. Yeah, yeah. But we do, you do arrive at a script because you can't shoot a film unless there is one. You can't get the continuity right, et cetera, et cetera. So we arrive at that. It's just that if you said to a writer, how long did it take you? If you said to Owen, how long did it take you to write Ordinary Love? And he said, a year, two years, nobody would think, oh, that's, yeah, that's maybe a bit long, but okay, that's how long it took you. Um, I mean, we do start on day one with Mike, except for his historic films, yeah, like sure. Peterloo, Peterloo and Topsy Turvy yeah. and all of that. Um, we start with nothing. I mean, he has notions and ideas and themes, and he has to cast it, so he sort of knows if somebody's going to be a brother or a son. or. A... But he actually doesn't really know where it's going to go. So the fact that we do it in about six months on average mm -hmm. um, is, not, is not bad going. But of course, he's doing it not on his own in a room. Yeah. He's doing it in collaboration with these actors. And by the time we've created these characters in a, a completely three-dimensional way, you then can put us into improvisations, into all sorts of situations, and you just fly because you know how that person's going to behave. And the dialogue comes from you, yeah. from the actor. I mean, yes, he then takes all that dialogue and sorts it out and uh, puts it in the right place and so that it isn't repetitive and boring yeah, yeah. and all of those things. But the words come from us. So the whole process of creating the what becomes the script that we shoot is a collaboration, yeah. and it's just a different way of doing it. I, th I think it's astonishing. I have nothing but admiration for that method of filmmaking, not least because it's like astrophysics. I remember interviewing Tim Spall, <laughs> and I said, you know, how did you get into Turner? He said, well, I had to learn everything that Turner knew. Yes. It's like, what, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I had to like literally learn about light, and, and it, I just think it's, it's an astonishing process. I want to ask you also about... You worked with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson on Phantom Thread. You were Oscar-nominated. should have won. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant role. I want to show one of my favourite clips from Phantom Thread, and I want to ask you a little bit about it afterwards. Have a look at this. Is there something I'm unaware of? Because as far as I can remember, all I have done is to dress her beautifully. I don't think that matters to some people. I think they want what is fashionable and chic. Chic? Oh, don't you start using that filthy little word, chic. Whoever invented that ought to be spanked in public. I don't, I don't even know what that word means. 
What is that word? Fucking chic? They should be hung, drawn and quartered. Fucking chic. It shouldn't concern you. It does concern me. It concerns me very much, Cyril, because it's hurt my feelings. It's hurt my feelings. So what's all this moaning about? I am not moaning. I do not like to be turned away from. Nobody does. But I don't want to hear it because it hurts my ears. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best line in the film. That's the best line in the film. So how was that? How was, how was making Phantom Thread? God, honestly, it was probably the best 14 weeks of my career. Yeah. It was heaven. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is... He's not just wonderful and makes films that you just... I mean, I love his films. I'm sure yeah, you yeah. do, too. Um, Total fanboy, sorry. But he's just... Going to work with him every day is just joyous. It's just, he's just a lovely, funny, gorgeous person to be in a room with all day. I had the script seven, eight months before we started. And he was not prescriptive about it at all. It wasn't, she needs to be this, she's this, she's that. He just gave it to me, there it was, and he just left it with me to stew for seven months. I mean, we met during that time, and I had copious amounts of costume fittings, obviously, because it's all about fashion. Um, but he left me on my own. So I, you know, I, I turned up and start, you, know, you start doing it, and then he just, he absolutely comes alive. So, you know, little things I did, like when I took off, because her hair's always neat like that. When, when she took her glasses off, like little wispy bits of hair might come out. So I'd take the glasses off and then tidy the hair. And he just, he loves it, loves it. And then he, so he runs with that and then he wants to do it. And he, and he plot when he wants to maybe do that again. And, and you just do, you just start to do stuff, little things, and he notices it all. And then he'll start to make decisions of how he'll shoot things. And then there's, a, there's another shot of, of Cyril walking down the hallway quite early on in the film. Simple shot, you could have shot it from behind and it wouldn't have been that interesting. But it's her opening the door, this neat, precise world that they're in opening the door to start the day the princess is arriving for her fitting. But he did the complete down the barrel, looking down the lens, you know, at, right down the lens. And it was a, um, something he'd seen his great friend Jonathan Demi do. And oddly enough, Jonathan died, and they were very close, mm -hmm. Paul and Jonathan. He died on the final day of our shoot. Isn't the film dedicated to it? Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. Yeah. But he, he um, I mean, two, such different rooms to be in, his room and Mike Lee's room and Lisa and Glenn's room, but amazing. And I, 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 I want to be, um, I want to be flexible. If I'm not in a room with an idiot, which m most of the time I'm not, <laughs> I, why wouldn't I go, okay, let me bring what I'm going to bring and you bring what you're going to bring and hopefully we'll make the best of both of us. Let me ask you an honest question. No, no names, no pack drill, right? So, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Mike Lee, uh, Lisa and Glenn, have you ever been in a room with an idiot? Have you ever made a film with somebody you just thought, you don't know what you're doing? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, yes, yeah, lots. And and, and you find, and that's and, and how do you get through it? Well, because um, uh, I, I'm I'm I've got enough experience to wing it by myself, and I can wing it by myself, but it's not very pleasurable. Yeah. I want collaboration. I want I want help. I mean, if I can come up with something on my own. I can work it out at home and. But it's boring. It's boring doing that. And, and actually, directors that aren't bringing anything for, to the table when they've got decent actors in the room shouldn't be doing it. I think you're fabulous. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
just quickly before before you, I know you have to rush off to BAFTA to get some other adulation. Um, uh, you're on stage very soon. What are you doing? Um, I'm doing The Visit just across the road at the National Theatre. It's um, Tony Kushner's version of a 1950s play written by Frederick Duranmat, um, and it's about uh, revenge, and I play the world's richest woman. There you go. Fantastic. <laughs> so that's have I sold it? <laughs> you have, and that's from January? The very end of January. Very end of January. Yeah. Well, we look for, you know, maybe if, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of award season and Ordinary Love is winning everything, you will persuade you to come back on the show. <laughs> it's such a pleasure. I really, really love Ordinary Love, not least because of, as I said, and I mean this in the best possible way, because of how funny it is, which I think is a really, really important thing, and I think it is a love story, along with everything else. Please join me in thanking the fabulous Leslie Manville. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's, uh, it's guilty pleasure time. <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of the funny things with guilty pleasure is that we've been doing it for a, for a while. And uh, with it, every now and then people say, well, you know, we should probably, we should probably lose uh, guilty pleasure because, you know, nobody's really guilty about everything, anything. But I've got to tell you, this week's guilty pleasure, <laughs> you know, you, mem you remember when Alan Jones came on and did Grease 2? Nothing. You remember when Ben Wheatley came on and did Zardoz? Nothing. Um, I'm so pleased that my next guest is here because I've been trying to get him on the show for ages because he's just unbelievably busy. Uh, director of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, Edgar Wright! <laughs> Edgar, welcome to the... I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. You are, you are the world's hardest working film... Two films editing at the moment. Yes. Which are? Uh, one is uh, my next, like, sort of fiction feature, which is called Last Night in Soho. And I'm also doing my first documentary about the band Sparks. Um, I've, never do, I've never done two things at the same time. I'm not sure I would recommend doing two things at the same time, but that is what I'm doing. And the feature stars... Feature stars uh, Thomas and Mackenzie, who's, who who's is so brilliant in uh, Leave No Trace, and Anya Taylor Joy, who's so brilliant in the Vavitch, and uh, <laughs> the Vavitch, and Matt Smith, yeah, from Doctor Vavu. Doctor Vavu, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm working on that at the moment. What kind? What kind of story is that? It is. Uh, I guess it's like a psychological horror. I've always wanted to do like a straight horror film. I guess Shaun of the Dead is obviously partly in that territory. But um, <clears throat> I wanted to do like a, a psychological horror film or a straight horror film. I also wanted to do something that was set in central London. You know, I've made films in in London before, but they've usually been in the suburbs or yeah. you know, kind of you know, outside the North Circular. And I spent so much time in Soho, like working and, and, and living as well in Soho and Fitzrovia, that I just wanted to make something that was in the centre. Because I felt like it was an area of London <coughs> that since the 60s and 70s doesn't appear on the screen that much. Mm -hmm. Partly because it's really it's difficult hard to, to film, film it, yeah, yeah. Yes. 
In fact, well, of course, the Phantom Thread is like mostly in yeah, Fitzroy, yeah, exactly, you know? yeah, absolutely. Um, so, do you live here, or do you? Because every time I, I try and get in touch with you, you're in LA, or you're in here, you know, or you were in Atlanta when you were doing uh, a Baby Driver. I mean, how long? How often are you actually here? I, I well, uh, comes a Friday, you don't never, call, you don't write. You <laughs> just, I've never, I've never left London. I've, I have, and I have actually been here most of like the last year. In fact, I was in this very theatre. Like all day yesterday, because I watched three Bob Fosse films in a row. Oh, well, as part of the musical <laughs> did any, season. Did anybody else do that yesterday? Which three yeah, did you? You did. I, I recognise you. <laughs> Which three did you watch? Sweet Charity, Great. Cabaret, and all that jazz. Uh, so, okay, and, and in, in a row is quite uh, like uh, uh, you know. Uh, overwhelming, okay. but it was amazing. Controversial decision. Which is which is the best of those three? Well, uh, no, uh, uh, I really love. On. I really. I mean, they're all great. Go on. I love Sweet Charity. Oh, okay. I, I okay. love Sweet Charity, but I mean, all that jazz is also incredible. No. No, no, I know. Okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, they are all. They're brilliant. all amazing. No, they are you know. all absolutely brilliant. I think all that jazz is. Is I mean I love Cat, but I think all that jazz is oh, such a, a masterpiece. It's I think amazing. Roy Scheider going, shut up, it's just fantastic. And all that jazz was the first time I saw a musical in which I I thought this is this is really psychedelic and you know the whole I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And then, I mean they're all great, you know. Yeah. Okay. okay, so we asked you to do two things, one of which was Guilty Pleasure. But I also said, look, you know, uh, inspirational movies. We asked you to choose one movie that changed your life. You came up with five. <laughs> these five, ah. yeah. And then you added one, which was Evil Dead 2. Yes. Yeah. So if That's we go, go, go back one, one, one still to the five, Nick. Okay, so briefly... Well, I think um, <coughs> just just for the for see, so there's Carrie, Good, the Bad, the Ugly, American Wolf in London, Raising Arizona, and Driver. I mean, Driver, obviously, you know, Baby Driver, direct influence, yeah, on direct Baby influence. Driver. And I'd say American Wolf in London is like, uh, you know, uh, a very tonally, at least, a very big inspiration on Shaun of the Dead for sure. But it's also one of those films, American Wolf in London. I saw it, <clears throat> I think, when it was first on the BBC when I was like ten years old, and my parents had let me and my brother stay up to watch it because they would let us stay up and watch things that were like a 15 or an 18 if, uh, if they had a fantasy element to them. Oh, okay. Because uh, America Wealth and I was a werewolf movie and it had special effects in it. We were allowed to stay up. And then I, so I was watching it with my parents and then when it got to the scene where David Norton has his throat slit by Nazi monsters, <laughs> my mum said, okay, that's enough, bed. <laughs> And I was sent to bed, and then I had the worst nightmares. Because if you're going to let your kids watch a horror film, at least let them watch the ending. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. if you don't see them, the, the, the evil vanquished in some way, then I was left with horrible, horrible nightmares until I saw the rest of the film and about of course, two years later. And of course, the end of American Werewolf is Soho, isn't it? It's the era of cinema's right in the very centre of Piccadilly. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, you know, when you look at that film now, it's sort of astonishing what he managed to get away with. I mean, I don't think anybody could shoot that Piccadilly Circus scene today. No. They wouldn't let you do it. No, no, absolutely. And, it, and, it, and it's brilliant. I mean, it, it's, it, it, is, it really has a tangible sense of place, and, you know, which is one of the things I love about it. So these are the things that inspired <laughs> plus Evil Dead 2. Incidentally, why Evil Dead 2 rather than Evil Dead? Oh, it's just, I think, the humour element of it. I love Evil Dead 1 as well. And also, Evil Dead 1, as a, I think when I saw Jonathan Ross did that documentary on Channel 4, The Incredibly Strange Film Show, yeah. and I think I'd always been interested in doing films, but it wasn't until watching his documentary about Sam Raimi and realising that he was like an 18-year-old who had made Super 8 films at school and yeah. then had just made a film and didn't know anybody. There was no nepotism. You know, I, always, I used to think that, like... Directors wrongly, I used to think the sort of directors had been dropped off by a stalk at Universal Studios, <laughs> and that's how they started directing. Or everybody was the son of somebody, and then you see other stories of thinking, oh, so he's just like a guy yeah. in you know Detroit, and he just starts making movies with his school friends. And, and I think that more than anything was the thing that I thought I I'm, I want to do that. Yeah. So that was the real sort of um, you know. Uh, touch paper for me okay. I guess so look those are good choices <laughs> and then I say guilty pleasure and here's the weird thing when you when you said your guilty pleasure at first I thought oh that's interesting I'd forgotten how bad it is <laughs> um, tell us what your guilty pleasure is well one thing I said before this I have a, I have a, a I, I get conflicted about guilty pleasures because I think maybe about 10 years ago I used to sort of make m 
more fun of like bad movies and even like screen them sometimes. And the thing is, is that if you make films, yeah. you shouldn't really make fun of other people's films because nobody sets out to make a bad movie. <laughs> However, well, I think, um, <laughs> no, no, no. but also I think sometimes, especially when you work in the industry, if you make fun of a movie in any public way, you'll always run into somebody who had something to do with it. Huh. And so, but also, guilty pleasures is like the thing about this movie is um, it is like it is like much of it is not good, and then there are moments that are like that uh, uh, I find quite creepy. And here's the thing, the reason I picked this as a guilty pleasure is that I had, me and Joe Cornish, uh, uh, the director, and also I've written with, we're sort of both obsessed with this movie. And then I went to see it at the cinema in Los Angeles, and I took a bunch of friends, kind of thinking it would be a laugh riot. And even though there are some very unintentionally funny bits, there are also some bits that are really creepy. And so I kind of came away sort of feeling, well, this is the definition of a guilty pleasure, because it's not 100% bad. There are moments in it where as inept as the rest of it is, it, it, every now and again it scores a bullseye. And then there are other scenes which are just beyond the pale. <laughs> so the movie is uh, Michael Winner's The Sentinel, um, which is uh, Michael Winner. I guess this is made in the wake of uh, The Exorcist and The Omen around the time when uh, big studios are making... Satan movies. And, and also uh, movies with big stars in them and expensive movies. They're like studio movies, but everybody's trying to replicate the success of The Exorcist. And The, the Sentinel is like um, trying its absolute darndest to be that. And, uh, you know, it was made in 1977. And, you know, it has an all-star cast. It's like... Um, well, have you got? Do you want to watch yeah, the trailer? We should, we should see the trailer because yeah. because I think the trailer <laughs> definitely sets the. How many people have seen the Sentinel? A smattering, I think. Okay, welcome to the Sentinel. <laughs> it's one of the nicer tree line blocks in New York, and only twenty minutes from the center of town. Oh, and just around the corner there's a supermarket, and the cleaners. That's Father Harron in Five A. He's blind. Blind. Well, then what does he look at? There is danger everywhere. There is evil, evil everywhere. Turn around, Allison. Look behind you. There is horror. There is darkness. I think Allison may die. But watching, waiting, warding off evil, there is hope. The Sentinel. Before Halloran, there was Father David Spinetti. Before him, Mary Thorin becomes Sister Mary Angelica. Father Matthew Halloran dies the same day that Allison Parker disappears and becomes Sister Teresa. <laughs> I like I like the uh, I like the specificity in the voiceover. It says, "Turn around, Allison." <laughs> oh, yes. Everyone else, keep looking straight ahead. <laughs> Only Allison is in danger. Also, I mean, <laughs> very early Christopher Walken, uncredited Christopher Walken, so much so that he's not even mentioned in the and list. And Jeff and Jeff Goldblum yeah. as well, and oh, Beverly wow. D'Angelo as well. Jeff Goldblum's in two winners, isn't he? Because he's in Death, Death Wish. Wish is one. Is of he the Death Wish or Death Wish Two? Death Wish One. Death Wish One, because he's one of the people that break into the into the apartment in his early thug role. Okay, so. Tell us what you like about it. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I, when I went to see it, at the, we, uh, me and my friend Joe became sort of obsessed with it and uh, with a couple of scenes. And then, and also the one of which we're going to play. One of which we're going to play. And then I did, when I did see it at the cinema, I took a bunch of friends and I thought, oh, this is going to be a camp classic. And there are bits that are really like, unintentionally funny. And then there are bits that are genuinely creepy. And there's that thing with like, and it's that funny, I would never like, it's easy, Michael Winner has a sort of reputation in this country of somehow being the world's worst director, but he's not. Like every now, he actually, the sad thing about Michael Winner is that some of his films, you know, there's bits of them that are good. He did have some talent and then he kind of just like, you know, sort of, ha- you know, has got zero subtlety in other places. And so for everything that's kind of good, there's something that's really bad that ruins the whole thing. But then there are moments in this film that are genuinely quite creepy. There's like makeup by Dick Smith, who did The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and, and the uh, Godfather and Little yeah. Big Man and you know yeah and it's I mean it's also impossible to uh, I mean with that cast as well it's like that's the amazing thing is Michael Winner would attract these massive casts he worked with Marlon Brando in Night Come he worked with yeah. everybody yeah all star cast so that's the thing that I like about it is it's genuinely sort of entertaining and I think the thing is I only think the only bad movie the only truly bad movie is a boring movie mm-hmm. if a movie is entertaining in any regard then it can't actually be a bad movie I don't think I think the only bad movies are boring movies and The Sentinel is not boring <laughs> and also the other thing that's interesting about it is it's clearly like uh, they ripped off um, the plot of The Sentinel in Ghostbusters like the whole kind of oh, plot yeah, line for like um, Azul and like the gatekeeper is kind of basically um, Christina Rain's plot line from this movie is the idea of this haunted apartment block where her apartment is the gateway to hell and all the denizens of hell are going to come through her apartment is like basically Ghostbusters just kind of and pasted that straight into their screenplay. Ghostbusters done by Michael Winner. Um, <laughs> in that trailer, the, one of the things that got the biggest laugh in which is he says there is evil and it cuts to a cat wearing a party hat. <laughs> I feel it's necessary to show that scene. Okay. And then just, I have just, a story just, about that exact scene Just as well. before we play it, what the hell is going on? So in this scene, I guess this scene is like this, you know, this is, it's a real like sort of like... Um, hodgepodge of things stolen from like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby as well and particularly she has these Christina Raines is a a model who moves to Manhattan and gets this kind of um, amazing apartment in this brownstone and uh, why is it so cheap but the reason it's so cheap is because it's haunted this place and eventually (laughs) there's uh, John Carradine plays this priest who's living on the top floor who's the sentinel who's the only person stopping the denizens of hell of coming into our domain so when John Carradine dies it's kind of Christina Raines is going to become the sentinel. So in this scene, she has these kooky neighbours, not dissimilar to the kooky neighbours in Rosemary's Baby. And what you find out later, spoiler alert, that these people are not alive. They are the ghosts of serial killers. So, but this scene, so that's number one thing. The number two thing about this scene is when she goes around to their apartment, they're having a birthday party for their cat. <laughs> this is the scene. <laughs> Good. Everybody, now tune up your voices. Black and white cat, black and white cake. Ready? Happy birthday, dear Jezebel. Happy birthday to you. I have a, I have a funny story about that scene, if I can go off on a quick You can. Tangent. I just say that he's definitely unfilmed a Michael Winner. That is, I, wanna, yeah. I, I don't, I'd love to know how he got the cat to stay still for that long. <laughs> Was the cat nailed to that chair? I don't know how the cat stayed still for that whole scene. I, well, I really enjoyed the reaction shots. <laughs> anyway, so... This is a tangent of story, and this involves some name-dropping, but it is worth it. So myself and Joe Cornish are obsessed with this movie, and uh, particularly this scene, and also the line, black and, wh- black and white cat, black, black and white, white cake. cake. And uh, so it's Joe Cornish's 40th birthday, and at the time when it was his 40th birthday, we were writing on Tintin for Spielberg, Steven Spielberg. Um, sorry. Boom! Sorry. I think you dropped this, Edgar, sorry. I didn't call him Steven. Um, anyway, so it's Joe's birthday. I was in Los Angeles, and Joe was still in London, and we were doing this uh, script conference on the, by Skype, and it was Joe's 40th that day, and I had got as a present for him... Uh, Steven Spielberg to sign a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster for Joe's 40th. And then also, actually, my Leo, who I, I, didn't, I never met him, but Leo, who I work with, I got in touch with my agent and said, hey, do you think I could get Michael Winner to sign a Sentinel poster? And so I got a Sentinel quad poster. This one, well, this one, actually. Well, not the French one, but I got like an English one. And Leo, who I work with, went round to Michael Winner's house and was forced to have breakfast with him. <laughs> That's the best part of the story. And then I specifically, I said, will Michael Winner sign the poster, black and white cat, black and white cake, which he did. So then cut to it's Joe's birthday, and we've just finished this conference, and Spielberg has got, I ask, I say, hey, can I use the Skype after the meeting? Because I want to give Joe his presents. And I had tucked the presents in the room that he was in, in London. So they were like behind him, and he didn't know. 
Everybody else had gone, so Spielberg had gone, but Kathleen Kennedy, the super producer, decided to stay behind. She goes, I want to see Joe open his present, because she was aware that he got this Raiders poster. So Joe's opening his presents, and, uh, and he get, opens the Raiders when he goes, oh my god, that's amazing. And Kathy's there going, <laughs> and then he opens the other one, he goes, oh my god! <laughs> you get this? <laughs> and I could see afterwards, Kathleen Kennedy, she says, um, what was the other present? And I said, uh, it, it was, um, I got Michael Winner to sign the poster for the Sentinel. <laughs> and her bemused expression of why that was better than the Raiders poster has always stayed with me. <laughs> but, um, the other thing about, I mean, the other things about this movie, like, um, it did inspire something that I've done. I don't know if you want to share this clip or not. I don't know if you even have it, but like I did, I did. Uh, if you, do you want to share the don't trailer? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, partly because we included it in our Secrets of Cinema special. Oh, you did. That yeah. I was very. Uh, you want to tell us what it is before we watch it? Uh, the, maybe about twelve years ago now, Tarantino, uh, Quentin Tarantino, and Robert Rodriguez did this <laughs> film. Sorry, Sorry just, just. I didn't say Quentin. <laughs> They did a movie called Grindhouse. Yeah, I was with Friedkin, Billy Friedkin, the other day. <laughs> <laughs> they did a, a double bill called Grindhouse. It was two different movies, and in the middle were fake trailers, and they asked me to do a fake trailer for a horror movie that did not exist. <laughs> so my idea was to do, like, a Euro horror, where, and it was inspired by things like The Sentinel, where if you just looked at The Sentinel trailer, you have no idea what the fuck it's about. And that was sort of the thing. It's like, And a lot of those Euro horror films... Like things like, um, I'm sure a movie that you love called Living Dead at the Manchester Moor. Yeah, yeah. Which is also in other countries called like, uh, uh, Do Not Speak Ill of the Dead or Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Very evocative titles. But in the States, it's called Don't Open the Window. <laughs> uh, and there's no window seen in the movie. <laughs> so I thought I would do, well, you'll see. This is it. So this, and, and, and you, as you see, as in the Sentinel trailer, which said from the frightening bestseller, I replicated that part. Based on the terrifying bestseller. I gotta tell you, that trailer saved us 10 minutes of screenwriting for Secrets of Cinema. We just went, that! There we go. Anyway, moving on. So, look, Edgar, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I do think I, The Sentinel is remarkably bad. Um, I think, I, th I do think. Bring, I, I've got, well, if there's probably going to have time, but I did bring Michael Winner's autobiography to tell a story about The Sentinel. But only if we have. <laughs> yeah, go on. Okay, I'm going well, to indulge you, okay? I'll just tell the story and I'll let him speak. So the, the other thing, and to really bring the tone down, I mean, by the way, before you watch this with your family or anything, there are some really Don't. lurid scenes in it. I mean, it's also infamous for like a really like terrible... Yeah, 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 really, really, yeah. And then the other thing that's really bad about it is that uh, at the end of the movie, uh, the denizens of hell come into the apartment and Michael Winner, with glorious subtlety, decided to cast... Um, people with physical deformities, yeah. and this is this is him. This is him dis discussing this in his autobiography. At the end of the Sentinel script, there was a line which read, "The denizens of hell come through the walls of the house and besiege our heroine." It was a reasonably budgeted film, but we didn't have enough makeup. Uh, we didn't have enough to make up 50 people in prosthetics every day, which takes about six hours for each person. We'd have needed 20 makeup men, so I decided to use genuinely deformed people. <laughs> 
My assistants gathered a group of the most amazingly deformed people. They were all very nice human beings. These are Michael Winner's words, not mine. Later on, I got press cuttings when many of them went back to different parts of America, and the cuttings all had one theme, that the person who was deformed said how wonderful it was to be on the movie and in the company of other people who were deformed because we realized we were not alone in the world. Uh, we were filming at a large house in Brooklyn overlooking the Hudson River where I sensed something odd was going on. There seemed to be additional people on set and gossiping. I said to my assistant director, what's happening? Charlie Oakham said, trade union representatives from the camera union and from the director's guild are here. The crew had phoned them because they object to having lunch with the freaks. They want to put a screen up outside so they don't have to look at them during lunch. I said, I've never heard anything so disgraceful in my life. These people have been disadvantaged by God. They're terrific people. We're working with them on set all day. Don't tell me these brawny New York technicians are so frail. They'll fall to pieces if they have to see them for an extra hour during lunch. I'm ashamed of everybody. Charlie says, be there as it may, Mr. Winner, I've got a screen going up. The freaks will eat on one side of the screen, we'll, we'll eat on the other. I said, Charlie, do you realize how disgraceful this is? I want to tell you something. I'm coming to lunch today, and I'm going to sit with the freaks to show my view of this matter. <laughs> Charlie Oakham said, what are you complaining about, Mr. Winner? You never eat with the crew. <laughs> <laughs> you eat in your own private air-conditioned room in the house. I'll bet that's where you have your lunch today. Now, this is where the, the story could get a lot better here, There's but it doesn't. More? <laughs> he says, to my endless and great shame, Charlie was absolutely right. Come lunchtime, it was 95 degrees outside. It was cool and air-conditioned in my little room that I had for myself to relax in. That's where I had lunch. Disgraceful. That's the end of the story. It could have been... He could have lied in his autobiography and said that he showed solidarity and ate with them, but he didn't. Wow. And then when Joe... Joe got that autobiography signed by Winner, and he said he asked Michael Winner to sign it, always eat with the freaks. <laughs> anyway, check out The Sentinel tonight. You know, I've been waiting for you to come on the show for ages, but you, you excelled even my expectations. Ladies and gentlemen... I really let the side down after Leslie Mandel, I'm sorry. With the guiltiest of guilty pleasures, the great Edgar Wright. Thank you. Well, there we go. That's the first half of the most recent NK3D show recorded live at the BFI South Bank. The second half will be on the podcast in a few weeks' time. If you like the sound of the show, you'd like to come and see it live, then go to the BFI website. And if you'd like to hear this podcast without adverts, then why not visit our Patreon page? Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and keep watching the skies. Listener.